Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 217 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're answering weird questions. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. It's another Fifth Friday, so we're bringing you another episode of Weird Questions with Jimmy and Cy Kellett of Catholic Answers Live. Jimmy, what topics are you going to be answering questions about today? Well, we're going to be answering things like, will we be frozen in time in heaven? Uh, did Lazarus have near, a near-death experience? Why is the night sky dark? And the answer to that is more interesting than you might think. Um, also, uh, how would resurrection work if you're falling into a black hole? What would have happened if Adam and Eve had children before the fall? What is the ship of Theseus and how should we look at it? And if Jesus had children, would they be normal humans? Very nice. Interesting questions. So let's now listen to your answers. About to get weird in here. Welcome back to Catholic Answers Live. I'm Cy Kellett, your host. And it's not because of our guest that it's about to get weird. Uh, Jimmy Aiken is our guest. He's senior apologist here. But we've got weird questions for Jimmy. And that's why we call this hour Weird Questions with Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy. How's it going, Cy Kellett? It's going very well. Thank you. All right. You want to do some weird uh, questions, Jimmy? That's what I'm here for. Oh, I guess that's true, huh? Gregory said this. How would someone participate in the resurrection at the second coming if they were to have fallen into a black hole or gone near enough to one that it's that time stopped for them relative to everyone else. It has been my impression that the resurrection is supposed to happen for everyone simultaneously. Maybe I am wrong, but how can this be given that time is relative? So the church obviously doesn't have a teaching here. This is a matter of speculation. It is generally understood that the resurrection will occur for all human beings at the same time. Now, Scripture clearly indicates that it's going to apply to all human beings who are here on earth at the time of the second coming. We don't really have a, 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 a statement of Scripture or the magisterium that addresses what would happen to people who are not on earth. But since it seems to apply to the whole human race, the logical assumption would be that it's going to be everybody. So as a way of getting at this question, let's talk about time dilation. Um, time dilation is something that occurs according to Einstein's theories of relativity when you either get in a, an, a strong gravitational field or when you start accelerating and moving faster. And so if you're here on Earth, on the surface of the Earth, you're deeper down into Earth's gravity well than you would be if you were up in a plane or a, let's say a hot air balloon just floating above the Earth. And time actually does run slower for those of us who are here on the surface than it does for people who are up in the sky. Uh, they've actually measured this with atomic clocks. It's it's a very tiny amount. It's like, you know, a teeny, teeny little fraction of a second. But it really is true. It's been confirmed. The same thing happens if you're accelerating, if you're moving faster and faster. And they can measure that, too. And in fact, if they don't correct for this time dilation, which is where time stretches and gets slower, if they don't correct for this phenomenon with our satellites, the GPS in your phone will stop working within a day or two. It won't be accurate anymore. So they have to constantly correct for this. Wow. Yeah. So let's suppose before we get to the black hole, let's suppose you get on a spaceship and it goes really fast. You're accelerating. You get near the speed of light. So time slows down. And if you hit the speed of light, it would actually stop. Well, the whole rest of the universe is still going on around you. You're just not aging as fast. You're not experiencing as much time, but you're still part of the universe. 
And so consequently, when the second coming happens, no matter where you are or how fast time is running for you at the moment, God can grab you out of that spaceship and judge you. So that's not a problem in and of itself. So now let's apply that to what happens with time in a strong gravitational field like a black hole has. Now the thing about black holes is they have so much mass that the gravity they generate is able to stop light from leaving them because remember time slows down. And so if the if time is slowing down, then the light's not traveling as fast and eventually if it's if time stops, the light can't go anywhere, so it can't come out of the black hole. And if you go into a black hole, well, okay, realistically what would happen under ordinary circumstances is you would just die because as you go into a black hole, um, your body is all the matter in your body is stretched out. And you, it, it's a phenomenon called spaghettification because you get made like spaghetti, you know, and eventually you're just a stream of atoms with no physical form. And so at that point, you would die and your soul would go to heaven. Um, but suppose that didn't happen. Suppose you somehow survived. And so you're in the black hole and, and you still have your body and time is stopped. Well, the reason that black holes are black is because the light can't escape. And that's because of the mass that the black hole has. And that's related to the gravitational, the strength of gravity to, to the gravitational constant of the universe. Also, the speed of light is thought to be governed by two properties that space has. One of them is known as vacuum per, uh, 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 permittivity, and the other is vacuum permeability. And so we've got like three physical constants that are governing the, the fact you can't get out of the black hole. But the physical constants of the universe are under God's control and they could be different than they are. And so God can simply change the constants if he needs to and pluck you out of the black hole and judge you. So I would say on the very reasonable assumption that this is going to happen to everybody at the same time, if you're in a black hole or in a spaceship that's severely time dilated, God will grab you wherever you are. <sighs> I am very grateful. Uh, thanks very much uh, for the question. I, I appreciate that. But uh, I, I was thinking, you know, spaghettification is bad enough, but spaghettification and then you can't participate in the resurrection. That would be awful. So, uh, yeah, great. I'm Gregory. I'm glad that one worked out. Thanks for the weird question. I do not know if this says something bad about me, Jimmy, but spaghettification makes me hungry. Mm -hmm. When you mention spaghettification, <laughs> I, I all of a sudden I'm hungry. It has that effect on a lot of people. Um, I'm going to go home. Until you get... think seriously about what it involves and does <laughs> yeah. to the human body. Then you might be less hungry. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. All right. Martin has a very succinct uh, but fascinating question. Martin, thank you for the question. What would happen if Adam and Eve had children before they fell? Of course, it's a matter of speculation, but uh, since human nature had not been damaged before the fall, uh, it would have been able to perform its role, its, its, its original function that God intended us to be able to do of passing on sanctifying grace to offspring. And so the children would have inherited sanctifying grace. It would have functioned, basically, um, the marital act would have functioned as a kind of sacrament. In, in communicating grace to the offspring. And so they would have been born unfallen and in a state of original innocence or original blessing. Now, what would have happened then is more speculative. Adam and Eve were given what theologians refer to as a period of probation where they uh, they could disobey God, but they also had the option of obeying him. And the thought is that if they had chosen to obey him, if they had chosen not to fall into sin, then at some point they would have been confirmed in grace. And so it could be that the children, if they had been born uh, it, without original sin, they might have been in the same state Adam and Eve were. They might have been in a probationary period where they had freedom to resist sin, but also freedom to sin. And if they passed the probationary period, then they might have been confirmed in grace also. However, 
It's also possible that, especially if Adam and Eve had been confirmed in grace, that their kids would have been born confirmed in grace as well. If they, though, had this period of probation, then we would be in a kind of interesting situation because we know Adam and Eve eventually fell. So what would happen with these kids? Well, it could be that the kids might have had the ability to resist the fall. And so you could have a situation where you've got fallen parents and unfallen children, which would be very interesting. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, there's another theory that Adam specifically, or you could stretch it to Adam and Eve, are what are sometimes called the federal head of the human race. And the idea there is that as Adam or Adam and Eve go, so goes everybody else. And so it could be that if Adam fell or if Adam and Eve fell, that would that effect would have rippled oh, yeah. to their children who then would have fallen as well, even if and and lost the original innocence, even if they hadn't personally sinned. But all of this is speculation, so we don't really know. Martin, thank you very, very much. It's weird questions with Jimmy Aiken and our guest you'll be surprised to find out is Jimmy Aiken uh, next weird question comes from Kyle in the season finale of a popular TV show a philosophical paradox known as the ship of Theseus was alluded to having never heard of this I did a web search from what I can gather it goes something like this if you take the ship of Theseus and you begin replacing its parts piece by piece, wooden board by wooden board. By the time you've replaced the entire ship, is it still the same ship? Is there a particularly Catholic and well-informed way to approach this question with our understanding of form, nature, and the soul? I understand that our physical bodies undergo a similar ongoing process, shedding and recycling out old dead cells and replacing them with new and better cells. Yet I am still me. I don't know that all the cells that replace them are better. At my age, I think some of the new cells that have come in and are not as good as the old ones. But other than that, I'm, I'm down with the question. OK, so one aspect and he accurately summarizes what the ship of Theseus is. It's a paradox that goes all the way back to the Greek philosophers, which is why it's got the name Theseus in it. And the idea is you've got this ship and you start replacing it plank by plank, and eventually you've substituted new planks for all of the old ones, is it the same ship? And one of the things that kind of adds an exclamation point or a zinger to this paradox is after you've replaced all the planks, if you've still got the original planks, you could reconstruct the original ship and you'd have oh. two ships. Which one is the ship of Theseus? Oh, yeah. And so... Um, Philosophers have thought about this, and including Christian philosophers, and they've applied it to the, to humans because our bodies do replace the cells that are in them over time. Um, here's how I would look at it. In the case of an artificial object like a ship, when you replace all of the parts in it, it is can be considered the same ship. Let's say I'm Theseus, I'm the owner, and you replace a plank in it. Okay, you replaced one plank, now that's still my ship. Legally, that is my ship. And you keep replacing planks, and legally, it's always still my ship. Yeah. So, for, so in terms of categories of human convenience, like legality, you can say, yeah, this is my ship. This is still the same ship, effectively. If you then, if someone goes to the dumpster and gets out all the original planks and built, reconstructs a ship out of them, well, that's not my ship legally. That's somebody else's ship. Uh, it's, you know, finders, keepers, losers, weepers. So whoever found the original planks and put them together again, that's their ship now. So I think there are ways of handling artificial objects like this. It becomes more interesting when we're talking about natural things like life forms, including human beings. And life forms have a soul. Um, which is what enables them to be alive. And the soul does not get replaced when the individual parts are replaced. So I always have the same soul, even if every cell in my body changes out 
over time. And so the soul is what a Christian philosopher would typically look to as the fundamental principle of continuity in an individual. Now, at a uh, question obviously comes up, well, what about with the resurrection of the dead? And, you know, because when our bodies get put back together, because if we have had all kinds of matter processed through our bodies with all these different cells we've had in us over the course of our lifetimes, what 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 happens when we come back from the dead? And the answer is we don't know. Um, one of the things that's part of the discussion on this was a document that came out from the International Theological Commission a number of years ago on certain questions regarding the last things. And they pointed out that, you know, the resurrection of the dead is a, is an event that involves our physical bodies, but the church has never said it requires exactly the same matter to have our our resurrected body. It doesn't necessarily require all of the same matter or even some of the same matter that was in there originally. It's hypothetically possible that just your soul attached to this matter makes it your body, regardless of what happened with the original matter. On the other hand, since we know that Jesus's body was not in the grave— when he returned from the dead and our resurrection is going to be like his, it's uh, it would seem that at least in his case and presumably in our case, a lot of that matter, at least that was in the grave, did end up in Jesus's resurrected body. And presumably oh. the same thing would happen to us. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, because we, we, we can see there's such a short time period there that it, his body doesn't uh, uh, fall apart or doesn't decompose doesn't decay yeah now if someone's body did totally decay god could still find whatever matter he needed that had been part of that person to uh to make a resurrected body for them or it could be that the soul is simply enough all right next uh, question what's weird questions with jimmy aiken uh, this hour next question comes from bob mr aiken i have been pondering a question that i suspect only you are equipped to answer in a way i can understand Recently, on an episode, you explained Olber's paradox. Since I first read about this idea several years ago in one of Stephen Hawking's books, I cannot help but think that it is in error. Mr. Aiken, please tell me where I've gone wrong. It would seem to me that if the universe was of an infinite size and had no beginning and the concentration of light sources throughout the universe is the same as we observe in our visible universe then the night sky would look the same or very similar to what we see now this would be due to the fact that as more and more stars exist further and further away from us the light from those distant stars is increasingly dim ultimately the light reaching us from those stars becomes infinitesimal no, infinitesimally small and imperceivable to the human eye. The rate of light reaching us on a nightly basis would be only marginally changed from what we see now as distant stars could have rates of light sent to the Earth at one photon a year or a decade or a century. I have trouble believing that I'm right about this and that you, Stephen Hawking and Heinrich Olbers are wrong about this. I also don't believe we live in an infinite physical universe with no beginning. I just don't see how Olber's paradox lends any support to that belief. Okay, so uh, Olber's paradox is something that has been speculated about for several centuries, and it was one of the people who made it famous is a German uh, astronomer named Heinrich Olbers. And the basic idea is suppose the universe is infinitely big and that we're surrounded by stars on all sides. So if you went far enough out in space, you would eventually in any direction, you would eventually hit a star because there would be an infinite number of stars around us in an evenly distributed pattern. So if you go far enough out, you'd eventually hit a star. Now, if the universe is infinitely big and it has stars evenly distributed through it that way, and if it's infinitely old, then there will have been time for the light of those stars to reach Earth. And so every single patch in the sky, since there's a star out there somewhere, some some finite distance away, 
um, there will be light reaching us from that star after an infinite amount of time. And therefore, the night sky should be as bright as the face of the sun. And it's obviously not. So that's that's the question behind Olber's paradox. Why is the night sky dark? Now, it seems to me that the problem that um, Bob is having is he's thinking of light as intermittent. He talks about if a star is far enough away, we'll only be getting one photon per year, decade, or century. And actually, that wouldn't be the case. Once a star flips on, you know, once it ignites, it gets enough mass that it starts burning its nuclear fuel, it emits photons continuously, just like our sun does. It's continuously emitting photons, and since we're close to the sun, we get a lot of photons or light particles from the sun. So if a star is very distant, it's true, we won't be receiving as many photons from it. And if it's very, very far away, then um, we would could be receiving only like a single particle of light, a single photon from that star. It's so far away that all the other photons it emits go elsewhere. But we get this one because if you go far enough out in space, there's going to be a star there. And uh. we should, after infinite amount of time, be getting at least one photon from it. So if you imagine the entire sky being filled with these stars, even if we're only getting one photon from them continuously, the whole sky should still light up. And that's a clue that either the universe is not infinitely big or it's not infinitely old. Now, we know that the, uni the physical universe is at least 200 times as big as the visible universe. We've been able to do measurements of the shape of the universe that show us the physical universe is at least 200 times bigger than what we can see. Um, we don't know if it's infinite or not in size, but we do have evidence that it's not infinite in time because of the Big Bang. And the Big Bang, is, which occurred about 13.8 billion years ago, is the reason the sky is dark because after the big bang everything blew up and there has not been time for light to reach us from these very distant locations and so the fact the sky is dark is actually evidence that the universe had a beginning i love it and 13.8 billion years or whatever it is uh, that's a lot of time but that's not even close to infinite nope it's a matter of fact infinitely far from infinite that's right. So next <laughs> next one comes from John. Uh, not being an expert on Thomas Aquinas, this one caught me off guard. I was asked if Thomas's view, if Thomas views God as being outside of time and therefore if there is time in heaven. I wasn't quite sure where to find the answer, but the question is basically if the conclusion of Thomas' belief about motion meant that heaven would be an eternal moment, so I guess everyone would be sitting around in front of God, frozen like statues. Is this anywhere close to what we can reason or what, what can reasonably be understood from his writings? Also, if there's no time or movement in heaven, how can the saints hear our prayers or intercede for us? This is just a or is this just a big misunderstanding so this one comes up a lot and if, and it's understandable why it comes up it's frankly because people get sloppy in how they talk about this, and it leads to confusion. Um, so John is right that Aquinas does believe that God is outside of time. It's also common to talk about us going to heaven and being with God. And people yeah. kind of infer from that, well, okay, if God's outside of time and we go to be with God, then we're going to be outside of time and we're going to be frozen like statues. And that doesn't seem to correspond to the idea of us being able to worship God in heaven or us being able to intercede for people on earth or things like that. The problem is caused by the going to be with God image. That is not physical. God does not have a physical location. There is not a unique physical location. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere in space and time um, by his power, because by his power, he is creating 
everywhere in space and time. If there's a place or a time, it wouldn't exist if God wasn't creating it right now. And so God, as a result, we talk about God being everywhere, including heaven. Now, heaven does not really mean up in the sky. That's that's a metaphor that God uses okay. to help us understand that it's a different place than here. And because humans associate up with goodness, you know, things are more important if they're bigger or taller or higher. Okay. If they're exalted, in other words, it becomes uh, this heaven or the sky becomes an image that's um, that's metaphorically suitable to describe God and where he is, which has to be the best. But it's not the case that um, he literally occupies a place up in the sky or anywhere else in this universe that's uniquely his place, the way where you're sitting side behind a microphone is uniquely your place. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about being with God in heaven, that's a spiritual form of union. Now, obviously, our resurrection bodies are going to be somewhere, but where scripture depicts that as happening is here on earth, on the on the restored, renovated new earth. Um, so we will continue to have a physical location and we will be in spiritual heavenly union with God, but we do not go outside of time. And that's clear because and the same thing is true of angels. Uh, the church teaches that if you're a creature, you have some kind of some kind of existence in space and time. So there are no creatures that are that don't at least occupy time. And that's not to say that time doesn't work differently in the afterlife than it works here. Um, it, since the, John was asking about St. Thomas Aquinas in particular, he viewed the afterlife at least prior to the resurrection, and also the way angels experience time as somewhat different than we do. Um, he recognized God as being in eternity, which means outside of time, and us as being fully in time in this life. And he proposed a middle state for angels and departed human souls. And this middle state he called eternity. And it shares some properties of time and some properties of eternity. So it's not strictly exactly like one or the other. It's different than both. And that's a that's a fine theological speculation. It's only a speculation. It could be that time works exactly the same way in the afterlife or for angels that it works for us. But it's clear that there is something time-like about what angels and departed human souls experience, because in both cases, we see them experiencing things in a sequence. So when in the case of a human, you die, you experience the particular judgment. If you need to go to purgatory, you go to purgatory. If, once you get purified from pur in purgatory, you go to heaven and then you're in heaven and then the resurrection comes and you get your body back and you experience the general judgment and you then live in the eternal order on the new earth. And in in all of that, you do other things, you know, while you're in heaven or even purgatory, you may be praying for people on earth in the eternal order where we're it's said that we're going to reign with Christ and reigning means doing stuff. So it's clear that there's a sequentiality to the future of human experience. We see the same thing with angels. You know, angels were created at some point. They had a decision to make for or against God. In the case of good angels, they periodically come down and do stuff. So they experience sequentiality. In the case of demons, it's even more interesting because most of them, or at least many of them, are still running around loose. Some of them have been, according to Scripture, chained in pits of darkness and are reserved for the final judgment. So some of them have this creation, fall, get chained up, later experience the final judgment. Others ha are running around, but then one day they're also going to experience judgment. And so we see a sequentiality both for humans and for angelic beings, and thus both of us have to experience at least something like time, and maybe time exactly as we experience it. 
Wow, John, uh, thank you for the question. It, do, it does leave me with this, Jimmy, if I may. Mm-hmm. Does that mean all of that, what you just said, that Jesus, in becoming incarnate, he too never, in, in his human um, uh, mm-hmm. um, nature, never goes completely outside of time. He too exists no. in time with us. He he exists in in some form of time and something at least like space because he took his body with him yeah. into heaven. Right. So heaven as it presently is, which is different than the, what it'll be on the new earth, but heaven as it presently is, is at least capable of receiving a physical body. Whether that physical body is extended in space exactly the way our bodies are, we can't know, but it's at least capable of receiving a physical body. John, I'm really happy that you gave us that question. It's Weird Questions with Jimmy Hagan. There are more weird questions coming up. We're going to take a quick break. We'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Elizabeth T., Carrie B., Jason E., James I., and Adam S. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the Catechism of the Catholic Church by Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. Jimmy Aiken is our guest. He's the proprietor of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. He's the author of a whole bunch of books, including The Words of Eternal Life, True Happiness, and Where to Find It. And he's senior apologist here at Catholic Answers. And in addition to all of that, he likes weird questions. So we love to do weird questions with Jimmy Aiken. Uh, I like them because they give you a workout. You know, so many questions. I mean, I've been doing this now since as at, at Catholic Answers for 28 years this June. And after a certain point, a lot of the questions, it's like, OK, hit the hit the hot key. Here comes the macro. Here's the answer. They're a little bit old hat, but these make you think. And I like that. Do you ever you just kind of feel almost like uh, my my mouth is giving the answer. My brain is (laughs) I I can do what I like. (laughs) All right. The next one, maybe you'll help me. I think Wojcik would be how I would pronounce this name. How would Wojcik? Yeah. uh Wojcik. Okay. Um, Woj, because the. the, Oh, okay. Wojcik. Um, I have discovered that someone. No, I'm sorry, Wojcik. If I discovered that someone has an object that can be spiritually dangerous to someone, would it be a sin to secretly take it and dispose of it without that someone's consent? If it can be done without his notice, and if it can be presumed that he wouldn't give up that object if informed about its, its danger. I'm talking primarily about objects that don't have much morally acceptable uses. For example, let's say my friend got a bunch of old books and magazines and asked help for help sorting them. In doing that, I found pornographic material, and because I know my friend, I know it may be dangerous for him. Would it be a sin or uh, or th- of theft if I took the dangerous material, destroyed it without informing the owner? What can be morally done in this kind of situation? So the sin of theft is taking property against the reasonable will of its legal owner. And if it's true that this is that whatever you find, whether it's pornography or something else, um, you, you if it's not reasonable for this person to retain it, you could take it without his consent oh. and knowledge in this case. Um, it would not be the sin of theft. Now, in making that assessment, you have a number of factors to consider. Um, one of them is whether or not he whether or not it really poses a, a spiritual danger to this person that um, that is real and that um, doesn't have a compensating reason for. So, for example, back during the 1980s, uh, President Reagan established like a panel on to study pornography and make recommendations about how to fight it. 
And among the people that were appointed to that panel was James Dobson, the founder of Focus on the Family. And so Dobson had to view some things that were possibly pornographic in order to make evaluations and recommendations. So in that case, even though there was a danger to him looking at these things and being able to say, okay, him and other people on the panel, um, is this pornography or not? Where should we draw the line and how can this be regulated? You know, cause you, you have to know what you're regulating. If you're going to regulate it, uh, somebody has to look at that stuff to make a determination and craft the policies. And so there was a compensating reason, even though there was some risk, our job in life as Christians is not to avoid all risk. If you try to avoid all risk and all temptation, you're not going to actually be living the Christian life because you're going to be living under a rock and it's not going to be healthy for you and you're not going to be doing good for other people, which is what Dobson and the other panelists were trying to do. Okay, Um, they were trying to find ways to craft policies that would protect other people from pornography. And that meant they had to have some degree of exposure themselves. So we're assuming that's not the case. And in a typical situation, if you know someone who's had a pornography problem and they they get a, a, you know, a lot of books from somewhere. okay, well, you can presume that there's not some comp counterbalancing good if it's pure pornography. You know, you look at a magazine and it's like, oh, wow, okay, this, let's get this out of here. But you have to be careful with this because it may not, if it's not obvious pornography, then it may not pose the same risk. For example, I can imagine some people in this situation being kind of scrupulous and they don't find a pornographic magazine, but they may find a romance novel and they don't know what's in the romance novel. Is this one of the pornographic ones or is this Jane Eyre? You know, (laughs) and and I can see people being kind of scrupulous about that or, you know, it could be Romeo and Juliet or whatever it may be. Um Not every story involving romance is going to pose a moral challenge to everybody. And so you you have to be careful in evaluating things like this. You can't just say, oh, it's in this area, so I'm going to steal it to protect this guy. Also, there can be you, you, there are other things that have perfectly legitimate uses. Like, let's say you're you, the guy is asking you to help go through an attic of stuff from his grandfather that he's inherited. And in the attic, you find a gun. Well, guns have perfectly legitimate uses, whether it's target practice or self-defense or whatever it may or hunting. Just because you found a gun doesn't mean, oh, I better take this away from this guy. Now, if he's mentally unstable and can't responsibly own a gun, that's one thing. But um, but you have to be careful in evaluating these things. Also, you have to evaluate the um, consequences of taking the item. Because if he finds out you took it, what is that going to do to your friendship? That's a factor that has to be weighed. Also, what is it going to do to his view of Christians? If he looks at you and says, you're this crazy moralizing Christian that's trying to run my life, that could push him away from God rather yeah. than setting a setting a better example that's more loving and open. If you're if you come across as this strict moralizer who has no tolerance for other people's views, you can actually push someone away from Christ. This is something St. Paul talks about in his letter to the Romans, where he tells some of his Jewish readers that God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of what you're doing. Yeah. And in in the same way, we Christians have to look out for that. Uh, We Gentile Christians included. Also, there are simple uh, practical preservation reasons. Like, let's suppose you find a weapon in the attic and your friend is mentally unbalanced. Well, okay, if you want to, if you can get that weapon away safely without him knowing, fine. But you also need to take into account he's mentally unbalanced. If he finds out, he might try to kill me. And I might have a family that depends on me. So maybe I should call in the authorities or something instead of doing it myself. So there are a bunch of things to think about here. But in principle, it is possible 
to not commit the sin of theft as long as you're taking something without as long as it's a it's not contrary to the reasonable will of the owner. So if it's not reasonable for him to have this, you could take it for his protection or the protection of others. All right. Uh, thanks very much for the, the question. Wojciech, I appreciate that. I hope that that was helpful to you. Uh, we're going to go to Lisa in Houston, Texas. Her weird question for Jimmy Aiken would or could Lazarus have had a near death experience? Well, since he died and came back from it, he had a full death experience. <laughs> That's and as near as you can get. <laughs> could say he had a near death experience, but uh, the term is ambiguous. Uh, there actually are a variety of phenomena that are reported as occurring near death. Um, these can include things like crisis apparitions. Uh, a crisis apparition is where someone is either dying or about to die or otherwise in danger. They're in some kind of crisis and they appear to people, you know, who are distant. Maybe a loved one suddenly sees dad as he's in the, you know, as he's dying or has a dream about dad as he's dying. I know a friend that that happened to. Um, also, the uh, people who are uh, in danger of death or are about to die often will have visionary experiences. They may sense the presence of angels or loved ones in the room. They may see um, a glimpse of what the next world is like. This happened to an uncle of mine who actually didn't die, but he was close to death and he was talking about all the amazing, beautiful things he was seeing. Um, so, you know, these are reported phenomena that occur to a large number of people. Now, the classic near-death experience that I suspect that um, that Lisa is talking about here. Oh, and by the way, my uncle lives in Houston even. Um, but the classic near-death experience that I suspect Lisa in Houston is talking about is the kind that was uh, popularized or discussed in a popular way by uh, Raymond Moody in his book Life After Life back in the 1970s and that has been kind of standard in the literature ever since. Basically, people clinically die and then when they come back, they report various things, which can can include floating above their body and seeing what uh, people are doing to them as they're trying to bring them back. It can include going through a dark tunnel. It can include meeting friends and loved ones. It can be having a review of everything you've done in your life. It could be encountering an angel or Jesus. It could uh, be seeing a beautiful environment where there are happy people and so forth. These are all commonly reported elements. Not everyone sees the same things or reports the same things when they come back. Um, perhaps because this is a non-physical experience and it's hard to cram all that into a physical brain once their heart gets started again. So they may oh. lose certain aspects of the experience. Um, but it's quite possible that Lazarus may have had all of those kind of things happen to him, whether he would have remembered them when he got back into his body or how much he would have remembered them is a question we really don't have the answer to. By the way, in Star Trek, the uh, Star Trek, the search for whales. After they've got Spock back in his body, it's not the name of it. It's not Star Trek: Search for Whale. It's how how I think of it. It's okay, yeah. Voyage Home. But yeah. after they've gotten Spock Spock's soul back in his body at the end of Star Trek Three, in Star Trek Four, McCoy asks him, "So you've really been where?" No man has gone before. I mean, you died. What can you tell me about it? And Spock just says, it would be impossible to discuss the phenomenon without a common frame of reference. <laughs> uh, but uh, as far as Lazarus goes, though, he did die. Like, he did die. He did die. Yep. So, he, he, did die. he was dead for four days and then he got brought back. All right. Uh, next uh, weird question for Jimmy Aiken. Uh, Jot Baleos asks, hi, Mr. Aiken. I am a fan of your podcast and books because it keeps my faith burning and not burning out. My question is, if Jesus had children, would his children be demigods or just normal humans? So um, <clears throat> if Jesus had children, there are two things that we need to think about here. The first one is Jesus's divine nature which is the reason he's God. And the second is his human nature. Now, in the in 
the case of like Greek demigods like Heracles or no, as he's known by the Romans, Hercules, he's a half breed. He's the son of Zeus and a mortal woman. And this shows us that the Greek gods are, scientifically speaking, the same species as humans because they're capable of breeding with us. And so if the Greeks had known about DNA, presumably God DNA like Zeus has would be different than regular human DNA, but it's compatible with human DNA. Now, they didn't know about that, but what they did say in their mythology was that, you know, people like Heracles or Hercules have some qualities that are like ordinary humans. So they're not full gods, but they have other qualities that are that are like the gods of Olympus. And so they're they're They have qualities that are a mixture of the two. And today we would explain that in terms of DNA, which is part of our physical nature. So Jesus has a divine nature and his divine nature is indivisible and it's immutable. And therefore, it could not be inherited by any children oh that he might have had. So they would not be divine for that reason. What they would inherit is DNA from his human nature, but we don't have any reason to think that his DNA was dramatically different than our DNA, than regular human DNA, because he didn't have a superhuman nature. He had a human nature. And so consequently, the children presumably would be humans and fairly normal humans, uh, they might be unfallen, though, because Jesus has an unfallen nature, and thus he might, he could, if, and certainly if he chose to, he could pass on uh, original innocence to purely human offspring. But this is all speculative, and uh, and it's something that we probably shouldn't speculate too much about. But no, his children would not be demigods if he had chosen to have children. Uh, Jot Baleos, thank you so much uh, for the question. Appreciate that. So, Jimmy, those were some excellent questions. So and obviously excellent answers. What do we have for mysterious headlines this week? This week we have an AI or artificial intelligence theme. And uh, for one of the stories we'll ha that we'll have a link to is about a debate that AI held with itself. It was tasked with both arguing for why we should develop artificial intelligence and why we should not develop artificial intelligence. So you let the AI debate, do the debate. And uh, I personally side with the AI when it says we should not develop robust artificial intelligence, <laughs> that the only way to prevent problems is never to develop it. That's right. We'll also have a... Um, a link to some people who are trying to uh, to use artificial intelligence. At least this is the proposal. They haven't actually done this. But in China, there is a there is an attempt to develop an AI that would be able to monitor babies in artificial wombs. One of the things that has been known was going to happen for some time because of the Chinese birth rate is that China's population is going to start declining in a big way, bringing on a demographic winter and there has been some speculation that they might be able to use artificial wombs to um, to help raise their population. And so that's immoral, but uh, that's not stopping them from working on it. And if you have a baby in an artificial womb, you're going to need some pretty careful monitoring of its conditions. You know, you need to have hormones and nutrients and oxygenation and all kinds of stuff. And so they've been uh, working on an AI that would be able to run the artificial wombs. And so we'll have a link to that as well. I think I've seen that movie. It's called The Matrix. <laughs> well, except in The Matrix, they're harvesting something from people and this is just <laughs> trying true. to get them, get them to the point of birth. Yeah, yeah. Still... I'm a little uncomfortable with how close that is to the Matrix. Uh, so that's it from us this time. We would love to hear your theories about the topics that we covered and the weird questions that Jimmy answered today. You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, sending an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world, or join the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord, or call our mysterious feedback line at 619 738 
619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. And I want to thank Oasis Studio 7 for all the video and animation work they uh, do on Mysterious World. It's really brought a lot to the uh, visual quality of the show, and uh, they take other clients. In fact, uh, they recently told me that they've gotten some new clients from Mysterious World listeners who checked out their work and were very impressed with it. So if you have video animation, uh, video or animation work you need done, check out Oasis Studio 7. One way you can do that is by going to my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken, where you can watch uh, all the episodes of Mysterious World. And I also do some additional videos. While you're there, I am trying to grow my channel. So I'd really appreciate it if you, uh, even if you don't watch Mysterious World there regularly, I'd appreciate it if you would subscribe and hit the bell for notifications so that you can get uh, alerts whenever a new Mysterious World video comes out or another video that I do. Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next week, we're going to start talking about the Kabbalah, a form of Jewish mysticism that has been around for centuries and has recently entered pop culture with celebrities like Madonna endorsing it. Kabbalah claims to have secret esoteric teachings that have been passed down from the time of Moses. So next week, we'll be telling you about where Kabbalah comes from, both what's claimed about its origin and what scholars have concluded is actually true. Then the next week, we'll be discussing what practitioners of Kabbalah believe and how it compares with traditional Judaism and Christianity. Interesting. Folks, be sure to share the podcast with your friends and write a review in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. That's really important to help us grow this community and reach more listeners. You'll find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the Mysterious Headlines on our show notes at mysterious.fm slash 217. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Fearvento Law PLLC, now assisting clients with expungements and set-asides of Michigan convictions. To learn more, call 231-202-3321 or go to fearventolaw.com, F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O-Law.com. And by Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Deliver Contacts, offering honest pricing and reliable service for all your contact lens needs. See the difference at DeliverContacts.com. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, The Secrets of Star Trek. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash trek.